0: come to you now. We do thank you for this, uh, this time each week. We, we pray that our time in Esther tonight is fruitful. Uh, we also pray that as we finish the historical books tonight, that, uh, that we'd be able to look back and see the wisdom that you've given us, the, uh, the, the reality that exists for us as Christians and our actual history as it has happened, and uh, just the way that you've moved throughout it. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we started Esther. This week we will finish the book. Um, It's a shorter book, and we kind of went through the entire narrative last week all in one sort of fell swoop because um, there's no real good stopping point from from the beginning to the end. Um, It's 10 chapters of narrative that include a story that has a lot of details that you don't really want to miss in one sitting. So um, last week our approach was getting through the narrative and looking at some, some details, and then this week will be more looking back on what we went through and gleaning what message God wants to communicate through the book as a whole. So, question from last week, how did Esther become the queen of Persia? Yes, the king wanted a sandwich. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. And a coffee. Um Yes, yes, it's a loaded question with many possible answers. We'll take that as one. How how did she become the queen of Persia? Yes. There was... I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Vashti. She couldn't listen, couldn't make sandwiches, couldn't respond. Yeah, exactly. So... Yes, so Vashti um, denies the king at a party. He says, "Come to me," and she says, "No," and she's she's done. And then, um, what's Esther's background? An orphan. What else? A Jewish orphan. Okay, fantastic. What's the dire and difficult situation for Israel? You're about, to experience severe persecution. about to experience severe persecution from someone who is in a hate relationship with him. Yeah, that's good. Who is that someone? Haman. Exactly. What were some of the ways uh, that we were able to observe God's providential movement throughout the story last week? Do what? There were a gazillion. We say bajillion, but I'll take gazillion. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just kind of lean towards that. I guess it must be um, <laughs> east coast, west coast. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, Yes, there were a lot of things uh, where we were able to observe God's providential movement. Name a few of them if you would be so inclined to do so. Let's just start with one, you know, let's start with one and then we'll go from there. Haman's plot to kill Mordecai kind of backfired on him. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute because it's pretty funny, right? What happened? Yeah, specially built gallows, yes. Mm-hmm. Saved his life, yeah. Yeah, it was it was beautifully poetic in the way it moves. You see this picture where way before, um uh early on in Esther's uh queenship, if that's what you call it, I'm sure it is. Um guys. fixed it. <laughs> okay. It's a very technical process we have for fixing our equipment around here. Yes. So, um, Big Tan and Ter- Teresa, what was his name? Big Tan and Tarish were going to assassinate the king. The, uh, Mordecai was there, um, overheard their plans. He tells, it in the book of Chronicles, and, and, the, and it wasn't read until again uh, later on uh, by the king, so he wasn't rewarded at first, and then he's reading it one night because he can't sleep. He can command what 127 provinces are going to do, but he can't command. And he finds out uh, that Mordecai, who saved his life, had never been rewarded. And about that time, old uh, old Haman comes walking in, ready to kill Mordecai. And the king says, what would you do to someone who needs to be rewarded? And he comes up with this really extravagant plan because he thinks it's him. And the king says, yes, don't leave anything out. Go get Mordecai. And so you see this really funny yet pathetic occurrence of um, Haman leading the Mordecai around on the king's horse, dressed in all the royal robes, talking about how awesome Mordecai is, and, and eventually he died on the gallows that he built for, for Mordecai. So it was, it was quite poetic. God's providence providential it was really all over the book. Uh, how does the book of Esther help us to walk well with others through heartache, tragedy, and uncertainty? How does the book of Esther help us to walk well with others through heartache, tragedy, and uncertainty? Okay, keep that question in the back of your head, and we'll try to answer it tonight as we go through the the text again. As I mentioned earlier, tonight we're going to conclude our overview studies of the historical books of the Old Testament. Next week, we'll move into wisdom literature, and Morris is going to start us off going into Job. And um, tonight, we're going to look at some of the lessons communicated in the book of Esther. There's lots of things we can glean from the book of Esther. But the way that we're, I wanted to take a few minutes to explain our approach and, and how it might differ from if we decided to approach the text in a different way, but we could talk about avoiding the vices and embracing the virtues of each of the characters who are in the story. We could do that, and that would lead us to talk about, you know, pride, uh, boldness, prudence, wisdom, um, and, and the like, and all such things are really beneficial, but in the, in these overview studies, Our goal is to understand what Dever calls um, the weight, the thrust, and the point of the book itself. So we could go through and look at what happened in one person's life and look at vice and virtue and try to say, how can we adopt that into our own life? And that would be good, it'd be beneficial, but in our approach that we're taking on moving through the text a little more quickly and taking an overview look at it, our goal is to figure out what, what's the point of this book? What are some of the lessons that this book would give us to, to walk with? So if we were going to say, what, was, what are we taking with us from the book of Esther? Hopefully, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight, sort of this big picture of the book. So in doing so, we're going to come away with a handful of fundamental truths from God, hopefully. So number one, the first fundamental truth from God in the book of Esther is Christians have enemies. Christians have enemies. Um, That may not feel like the most encouraging point number one to start with in a study to remind you that you have enemies if you're a Christian, but it's very, very important that we don't lose sight of this. From our study last week, who are some of the enemies that God's people encounter? Haman. Anyone else? Let's say Haman and all the people who tried to kill him. We'll go with those two. That, that kind of sums it up. What about before the book of Esther, who were some of the, the enemies that, that we saw throughout the historical books in the Old Testament for Israel? Babylonians? Assyrians? Hittites? That's always a good one to throw out there. Some Inns, some Ites. Mm-hmm. They're exiled in Persia here, so Persians, at least to some degree. Maybe that old group, the Egyptians. The what? The Canaanites, yes. Um, so we, we can look back and read these historical books and see that throughout the history of there being a people who are called God's people, who are a distinct people, one of the distinctions that they have is enemies. They have enemies. For us, we need to understand Christians have enemies. Turn over to John 17. Keep your finger in the book of Esther there. We'll, we'll be going back to it. But John 17, um, this is the, we studied this for a, a number of weeks uh, when Ben was preaching through the book of John, the high priestly prayer. And in John 17, there's this prayer where Jesus is, t- is is speaking to the Father, and it has so much to do with their relationship and how that affects our relationship with them And one of the things he says in verse 14 of chapter 17 in John is, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. Let's read that again. I have given them, this is Jesus saying to God, Father, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. My question is, what does this reveal to us about our enemies? Why do they exist and what's the source of their opposition in regard to us? They're opposed to God's word. What happens to us when we're given God's word? We're hated. And and why are we hated? They oppose God's word, so we're hated. What other thing do we have there? There's a couple of details. What's the word do? It changes us. How? Makes just hate the world. Not the people of it, but the, the, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're not to be worldly at that point. So, Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, holiness was the word that I was looking for. That's, you were given the word, the word makes us holy, it conforms us to the image of our Lord. And what happens there is we like him are not of the world at that point. There's something that changes. So I want us to see that God and his word are the source of the opposition that our enemies have toward us. So I want us to see that, it's not that God was snoozing so we have enemies or that, that um, God didn't pay attention to all the details so we end up having some enemies. There's this design aspect of the whole thing that we have enemies because of God and his word. So um, to be an enemy of God's people is to be an enemy of God is what we can glean from that verse because if you look at it, it says, they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. So that means that we can conclude that to be an enemy of God's people is to be an enemy of God. So our first point is that we have enemies. It's really easy, I think, to forget this in a country that's founded on the principle of religious freedom. But inevitably, over time, people have grown less tolerant of opposing religious beliefs. Do do y'all feel like in our culture we're growing more tolerant of opposing religious beliefs or less? Yes, my next sentence is especially intolerant of the Christian religion. I would agree. And why do y'all think that is? Because if we don't have a reason, if we're not going to look at it soberly, we sound like a bunch of whiners that, that expect everyone to just say, "Yay, Christianity." So why is it why is it so particularly opposed? Exactly. This is the one that says this is the only way. It's almost like it's too narrow. But we know it's not too narrow. It's just narrow enough. So, especially in tolerance of the Christian religion, that's founded on the belief that Jesus is the only way to salvation, nothing else. Jesus is the only way to salvation. So, given that, we need not be surprised when, uh, when that message is unsavory to those we share it with. I kind of grew up in a Christian environment where it was like, man, you come to Christ? Things are going to be better, for one. And then you're going to share a message with people, and the large majority of them are just going to love you for sharing that message. And then you're going to share the message, and they're going to love you, and there's going to be more Christians, and so you're all going to be sharing the message more. And it's just, it's just by design, it's just going to spread just very easily. I love that idea. I remember being a very young man thinking, man, that makes me want to give my life to missions. That makes me want to move to a country where... You know, there's not a whole lot of Jesus being talked about. And be able to share that, it just multiplies that easy. And then the time comes where you share it with someone and they tell you you're a fool. Or they tell you they don't really want to hear it. Or they tell you they, they're they offended. Uh, does, has anyone remember the first time they shared the message of Jesus with someone and the person was offended and you found yourself like, wait, I thought this was supposed to encourage you. And now you're offended by the message that I shared with you. First time it happened to me was in an airport. And I just remember... I was so confused. I was a teenager, and uh, there was some guy that noticed we were on a youth trip because we're all wearing solid-colored T-shirts and acting like Lord knows what, and uh, he just came over there to, to just prime the pump. I mean, we just had a big bullseye on us, and uh, he came over and said something, and I was, uh, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to share the gospel with him so he would understand why we were so excited about what we were doing, and, um, and man, he's just like, yeah, that's offensive, I just remember being so confused as a teenage guy, thinking, gosh, that's offensive. I'm praying for him. Lord, clearly this man's crazy. Why would that be offensive to him? Just help him not to be so crazy so he can know how sweet of a message it is and and make me feel good by accepting such message. So um, we need not be surprised when the message is unsavory to those we share it with. Scripture says that uh, to some, it'll be a a sweet-smelling message of life. I had to practice that this afternoon. Sweet-smelling message of life while to others it'll be the stench of death. Some will embrace the message and the people who are marked by it, while others will reject the message and all who proclaim it. You'll find the occasional friendly atheist who rejects the message, but not the people who proclaim it. But I'm personally finding such people harder and harder to come by, because the message is either offensive or it's not to so many. It's really difficult for one to embrace Christians, but not embrace Jesus. And in doing so, they're regularly forced to reckon with the judgment of God in light of the Christian's message. If I have a, f- a friend, um, which hopefully we are trying to make friends who aren't Christians, the, like, don't, don't get the wrong message from what we're talking about here. Uh, but there's, there's something where you say to someone, Jesus is the only way, and, and I want to share the message of hope and salvation that's found in Christ alone, and if they're like, I reject that, but we can be friends. And But if that's a message that you're proclaiming, there's sort of this rub that's always there and it's a difficult, it causes a strain. It doesn't necessarily immediately make them enemies or anything like that, but in time, that's how a lot of enemies are made is, is they'll, if you're not of the world, neither was Jesus and that's how you'll be rejected as a Christian. So in doing so, um, they're forced to reckon with the judgment of God in light of the Christian's message and John 17 says clearly that the world will hate you if you're not of this world. The message of Christianity literally rocks the world of those who hear it. It shakes the core of their existence and brings about questions and considerations that can cause some very deep emotions and responses. So it's part of God's revealed truth that Christians will be hated because they're not of this world. It's part of God's revealed truth that you as a Christian will be hated because you're not of this world. I don't remember hearing that as a young Christian. I didn't grow up with such a warning. And that's why I was so shocked when there was rejection along the way. But to be clear, how are Christians supposed to treat their enemies? Love your enemies. What else? Pray for your enemies. What else? What about those who persecute you? Do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Yeah, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. So, So you have a message, it's rejected by people called enemies. And then you love those enemies. You seek to bless them. You want to spend yourself on their well-being. So you don't quit proclaiming the message, yet you help them in practical ways. Which What what does that cause? Well, these are the kinds of actions that trouble those who initially reject the message of Christ. And it's these very actions of unexpected love um, that force many to reconsider the message. I mean, that's how that happens. That's God's design. You share a message with someone. Maybe they reject it. And you continue to love them, walk with them, sow into their life, seek to do good. And in those actions of love, oftentimes people will reconsider the message because they see it authentically being lived out and proven in the life of the Christian. So you can see what happens if you don't live it out. If they reject your message and you call them an idiot or... Tell them if they were smarter, they might get it, or you're condescending, or you're arrogant, or you're entitled, or whatever number of issues Christians can step into, um, you can see the the adverse effect that it would obviously have. So, these kinds of actions will obviously cause um, some to reconsider the message spoken by their perceived enemies who want to bless them. So, while it is certainly offensive to reject God, we must not be offended when it happens. Rather, we go on the offense. you all hear what we're saying here? We go on the offense if someone rejects God, seeking the well-being of our enemies as we bless them and love them. What that means for us is that for Christians today, vengeance is not ours to seek. We don't seek our own vengeance. Because right now, I'm just talking about the possibility of someone rejecting your message, maybe being rude to you in the process, but the reality is far worse things are happening for people who are proclaiming the Christian message. And so we get to this part about not seeking our own revenge, and you may be thinking, I've never really thought about seeking my own revenge, but if someone were to kill your loved one because of Christianity, your thoughts on revenge might change. And if you don't know ahead of time what God says about that, um, there's gonna be a problem in, in if you're gonna respond faithfully or not. Here's why we don't seek our own revenge. Point one is that Christians have enemies. Point two from Esther is God always punishes his enemies. God always punishes his enemies. We've already established that enemies of God are enemies. Enemies of God's people are enemies of God. But it's God who will punish his enemies. How are his enemies punished in Esther? What happens? They're killed. The edict goes forth from the king to allow the Jews to defend themselves. And the Jews defend themselves, and the result is that many of their enemies, if not all of their enemies, die very bloody deaths. So we see in Esther that God punishes his enemies. Now, don't draw the conclusion that I'm saying, so, yo, know, we kill our enemies. I, just, I tried to make that really clear before we got to this part of the study so there would be no confusion. But God does punish his enemies. What this means is that for those who persevere in wickedness, they will, by God's own hand, come to an ill end. For those who persevere in wickedness, they will, by God's own hand, come to an ill end. That should be heavy on your heart as you're walking with those who maybe are rejecting the message or aren't walking in the message or maybe saying they believe it but not living that out. You want to constantly edify and encourage because you know that if they persevere in wickedness, they will be punished by God as his enemy. For those who persevere in wickedness, that's what God will do. I think this should cause at least two sober responses for us. The first response when you realize that God punishes his enemies is to consider your state. Consider your state. This is, sometimes um, preachers have been known to, um, you know, use this as a manipulation thing where you kind of go hellfire and brimstone and you, you, want, you want to get people to question their salvation. And that's not what we're talking about right now. What we're talking about is realizing that God punishes his enemies and seeking as a believer to really consider your state and encourage others to do the same. What I mean is this. When you consider your state, you ask questions like, are we actually exercising belief in God? Are we actually submitting to God in our marriages. Like, is there any part of the Bible that you go to, you read that about marriage, and you lift up your head and you say, <laughs> You don't know my marriage. You don't know my spouse. And you're just going to refuse to submit to what is being said. Or are we submitting to God in our parenting? As I was going through this this afternoon, I was very convicted about this. I don't sit and read the word with my children enough. So, part of my faithful response to this lesson from Esther is, I need to sit and read the word with my children more and be more diligent about that. It's not never, but it's, it's not as, as robust as it should be in light of what God's done for us. And that's something that convicted me as I considered my state um, this afternoon and looking through the text. Are we submitting to God in our finances? Are we submitting to God in our friendships, in our worldview? Are we submitting to God in our response to conflict, Contrary to the opinion, or at least the message of many, considering your state is not something that you do only one time in your life. It's something that you do regularly. And I bring this up very purposefully because there's a, uh, there's a regular, we'll call it, just call it a norm in our culture, of a message that says you just kind of have to consider your state once. You consider your center And then upon that, you consider Jesus. And at some point in your life, you say, I'm a sinner. Jesus is not. I need Jesus for my salvation. And you become a Christian. You profess faith in Christ, and then you become a Christian. But the problem is, in our culture, we have so many instances where someone does that, and they never consider their state again. They never take a close look at their life from that point forward. The first person that I ever baptized at Crosspoint, I don't know if he has since ever considered his state in light of the message of Christ. It was a, an exciting thing. He wanted to surrender his life to Christ. We went through all the details you go through. We walked slowly through it. I baptized him. I never saw him again. Baffles me. But it's a norm in our culture, the, this culture of revivalism and getting people saved. You know, there's, there's a phrase, at least they're saved, that, that we have heard at, at funerals. Of all places, at least they're saved. That's not an at least. That's the mark, the, the apex of Christianity. You're saved, not at least they're saved. And so I feel like it's important at this point to say you don't just consider one time your state. It's not, it's not something that you do once and then just for the rest of your life you look back on it. And if someone asks you about your walk, you say, well, I got saved when I was eight. Well, how's your walk with Jesus? Well, I became a Christian when I was eight. And then you got nothing else to say. We are to be considering our state um, regularly. Scripture calls it um, a number of different things. Scripture calls it keeping a close watch on your life. That, that's one way that Scripture talks about it. Keep a close watch on your life. Do you do that? Or do you just float through life, and one day you're just gonna sort of tumble into the presence of God and hope that the good outweighs the bad? That's not Christian life. So so it says keep a close watch on your life. Or Scripture says it another way is making good use of your time or looking carefully on how you walk or being transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is what Scripture calls us to, considering our state, There's an intentionality in our lives that should be present all the time. And sometimes we can't muster it on our own. That's why we need community, so that when I'm not being intentional about keeping a close watch on my life, a brother or sister can come along and say, hey, Scott, I'm seeing this. Because according to Sunday's message, I don't have all the wisdom I need to see what I need to see. According to Sunday's message, there's some things I can see really clearly, and there's some things I can't. And if I can't see it and no one else is in, let in, allowed in, What's my hope of light being shined in that dark corner? I need other people. And so, considering your state is something that we do regularly. As we consider that God will punish his enemies, and as we regularly consider our state, the thing that we'll inevitably find is sin. If you're considering your state, that's not just an exercise of affirmation. Okay, where am I at? I'm still awesome. Sweet. A few years down the road, okay, where am I at? Man, I'm rocking this whole Christian thing. God must be so glad I'm on his team. Okay, consider my state. It's not just this thing of affirmation. As you consider your state, the thing that you're going to find is you're doing that because you know that God will punish his enemies, and you consider your state and you find sin because we are all fallen. Inevitably, we will find that. And when we do, we move to that second sober response. So the first response is consider your state, and the second sober sober response in light of this is, is repent immediately. Don't dabble in sin. You'll hear this again, and you've heard it a lot. Don't dabble in sin. It says, put to death, therefore, what is in the flesh. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's a violent picture of cutting its lifeline, not just wounding it, not dabbling in it, but putting it to death. And so when we see something in our lives that's not right, that's against the will of the Lord, We repent immediately knowing that by God's design, there is an urgency for repentance when we see sin. By God's design, there's an urgency for repentance when we see sin, not to take it lightly ever. Don't dawdle. And our message explains why. Jesus is the only way for sins to be forgiven and for us to be able to repent and live lives of holiness for the glory of God. That's the only way. So why would we take lightly uh, what Jesus has done and why he's done it? So our first lesson from Esther is Christians have enemies. Our second lesson is God always punishes his enemies. And this third lesson is something that it's just weighty to me, and we'll talk about it. But the third one is that um, God will certainly deliver his people. God will certainly deliver his people. Do you believe this? I mean, think about it in your minds for, for a moment. Do you believe that God will certainly deliver his people? Think about what what you think of when I say deliver? Like what, what picture pops up into your head? What do you what does it mean that he delivers us? How how did God deliver his people in the book of Esther? Actually let me be clear. This question I don't want you to just think about in your head, so like actually answer it. Sorry. I had y'all in reflective mode and then I asked an actual question then. He saved him from death. How did he do that? Yeah, it's absolutely remarkable. He saved his people. He certainly delivered his people. This orphan, who wasn't even Persian, Um, and it was remarkable, uh, the the whole thing. I mean, y'all remember the list from last week? It's all these just happened to, just happened to, just happened to. And if we look at our own lives, we see a lot of just happened to, happened to. God will certainly deliver his people. Uh, To me, this is such a huge part of what it means to be a Christian, yet for many Christians, God's deliverance is confusing and difficult. For many Christians, God's deliverance and the concept of it and what it means is very confusing and difficult. What I mean is this, are there people in the world who are Christians who are being killed for their belief in Jesus Christ? Yes. Are there people in the world who have been treated unfairly at work because of their belief in Jesus Christ? Are there children at schools who have been treated unfairly because of their belief in Jesus Christ? Okay then what does it mean when we say God delivers his people? Some are being treated wrong, some are being killed, and then the in-between, some are being tortured, physically violent actions toward them. So what does it mean when we say God delivers his people? What does it mean when we say that nothing separates us from the love of God? Because I know a lot of people that have been through a lot of really horrible stuff, and when you say to them nothing separates us from the love of God, there's a moment for that person where they say, I don't know, man. That was bad. What happened was really bad. It was really hard. It was really dark. It was really oppressive. And so for us, we have to ask, in a moment of you know, sobriety and you know, s- stability, what does it mean? What does it mean that he will certainly deliver us? Luke 12, 4-5 says this. I tell you, friends... Do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. Let's just stop there. Really? What did that just ask of us? Put it in your own words. What did that just tell the Christian? Be willing to die. Don't fear the person who can kill you. I remember how easy it was as... As a young man who is unmarried, to say such things, to think about what that moment might be like should the Lord call you to it. And then you get married, or you have friends that you become very close to, or you put down some roots somewhere, or you have children. No matter what your situation is as a Christian, Luke 12 applies. I tell you, friends, and he calls them friends. He doesn't say, "I tell you people I'm annoyed with who I wish someone would off." He says, "I tell you friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, have nothing more that they can do." What's he saying about killing the body in that verse? Yeah, like in some manner, in in some Christian manner, in some. Manner of God's love, that it's not such a big deal, man. That it's hard for me. <laughs> if anyone's sitting there saying, "Yeah, yeah, it's not a big deal," man, that's awesome. Keep that up, persevere in that. For those who aren't there, we're gonna have to do some work to consider why. What, what in the world? How, how does that? How's that good? How's that? How's that positive? How is that me not being destroyed? <laughs> oh yeah. hmm Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that phrase, God's economy. That's a really good phrase. You should write it down in your notes because when we talk about the providential movement of God, and you see what he's doing and how he's doing, and there's deposits here and withdrawals here and connections here and relationships here. There are so many things that have happened in your life for your well-being that you have no idea how you got to that point. You could, if you tried your hardest to retrace it, you still wouldn't be able to because God's that awesome, and he blesses his people in that manner, and he moves in a wisdom that's infinite. It's not lacking in anything, and it's not limited in any way. It's absolutely remarkable. So when we come to this, <clears throat> after that, they can do nothing more to you. He goes on to say, "But I will warn you who to fear, whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell." Who's that? God. He's saying fear God. Don't don't fear the people who can kill you and then they can't do anything more to you. He says fear God because after he kills you, he can cast you into hell. Why would God cast someone into hell after they're killed? His enemy. He punishes his enemies. How in the world could they not be his enemy? Through Christ. That was Sunday school answer, Jesus. Yes. That that That's the weight of things that we're talking about here. That's the weight of things that we're talking about here. Do not fear the one who can kill you because when they've done that, they've, they've, played all their cards, they've shot every round in the gun, they've, they're, they got no other moves, they just, they kill you, and well, guess what, God's gonna be glorified in your death, and they just ushered you into his kingdom, they got nothing else, so don't fear them, fear the Lord, who after he kills you, continue to hell, so how do we write, I mean, how do we move in that, how do we rightly fear him, so we see this, he has that authority, so a question we could ask is, so is it safe to be a Christian or not? Ultimately, yes. What about right now? Yes in one way and no in another, right? Is it safe right now to be a Christian? Will God really deliver us when we really need it or not? Will God really deliver us when we really need it or not? Say that again. Yeah, when wouldn't we need it? That's a great question. When wouldn't we need deliverance? What'd you say? Oh, yeah. It's a good question to explain why you don't understand my question, but I'll get to it, I promise. Will he deliver us when we really need it or not? In those moments where we perceive that, oh, man, things are bad, will he deliver us? I'm tied to a tree stump and there's an ax over my head. Perceived need of immediate deliverance Will God deliver me or not? And what is that deliverance? What are we talking about when we say deliverance? So that's why that's a good question. And I think the answer that scripture leads us to is this. The people of God are more safe than any others on earth. We're not safe from earthly violence. We're not safe from physical death. But we are safe from final ruin before God. For the Christian, this is kind of where we get down to brass tacks. This is sort of where the rubber meets the road for the Christian. Do you trust Jesus to the point where this reality is a comfort and an encouragement to you? Do you trust Jesus to the point where this reality, that they can kill you, but they can't destroy you, do you trust him to such a point where when you hear that, it's an encouragement to you? Because I think when we actually reckon with that as a reality for the Christian, for some of us, we might kind of balk at that, kind of say, I don't know if I'm encouraged by that. Or some of us might say, yeah, I'm encouraged by that as long as no one kills me. I'm encouraged by that as long as no one hurts me or my family for my faith. Are we really encouraged at how God continues to move even if the nightmare comes true? Do you trust Jesus to the point where there's comfort and encouragement in such reality? God is the only one that we should finally fear. And if we're in Christ, we do not need to be anxious about his love. If God was glorified, this is, these are some thoughts, some questions that popped in my head as I was looking through this today. If God is glorified, was glorified, is glorified in the death of his own son, could he not be glorified in your physical death also? If God got his glory even out of his perfect son being tortured and beaten? Could God not get glory out of physical violence that's inflicted upon you? I mean, this may not be the immediate reality for us, but who knows what the Lord's calling people to in this room? Who knows what the Lord has in store for the days to come? Scripture says, keep a close watch on how you walk. The days are evil. Mhm. 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 Yeah. What are we Mhm. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Because there's so many different situations where you could define deliverance in a thousand different ways. You even, at that point, given the vastness of the possibilities, you trust God with the definition of deliverance. And you know that it's ultimate. You know that it's unshakable. You know that what is, going, what is absolute best for you is what is most true for you in Christ. What is absolute best for you is what is most true for you in Christ. If God got his glory out of his son even being beaten, could he not be glorified and physical violence inflicted upon you? Is this not what it means to count the cost and to take up your cross and to follow Jesus? Now, I don't want to be light about this. I don't want to be flippant about this. Because it, it I don't know, as a, as, if you're teaching this, if you're standing in front of people delivering this message, it's easy to, yeah, nothing can hold us down. We're going to storm the gates, water pistols and Yeah. And it's easy to get excited about it, but the reality is, if this stuff, this stuff happens to any of us, it's nightmarish. If this kind of stuff happens to anyone we know and love, it's terrifying. It's nightmarish to be beaten or hurt or wronged. In the moments following the death of loved ones, especially maybe even the death of someone who died because of their faith, is especially real and heavy, even seemingly overwhelming at times. So I don't want to make light of the troubles that we face in life. I just want us to have a big enough picture of God that when it inevitably happens, in some measure or another, for some it'll be nightmarish, for others it may not be so much. Either way, if we don't look at the word and see what happened in Esther and see how God moves We won't be prepared for those moments when they come. We won't walk in that fearlessness that Clay just mentioned. But if we know the bigness of God, the sovereignty, the providential movement, the absolute certainty that he will deliver his people, in those moments, we will have stronger faith. We will not be so shaken. We will be able to be a witness to the goodness of God. We'll be able to proclaim things that people will say, did you hear what they just said that was crazy and amazing? We'll be able to set an example for the goodness of Christ in our our hard times, which is part of his design. So it's hard, it's overwhelming, it's nightmarish when those things happen, And, and I think this is why God calls us to weep with those who weep. You're heartless if someone goes through a trial and you look at them and just say, you're a Christian, buck up. That's absolutely heartless. You weep with those who weep. This is why God calls us to satisfy the desires of the afflicted. You don't look at them in their affliction and say, you're a Christian, get over it, be strong. There may be a time where there's that the pep talk sort of moment in Christ, but you weep with those who weep. You, you seek to satisfy the desires of the afflicted. That's why God calls us to pour ourselves out for the hungry, to count others as more significant than ourselves, because life on earth can be hard. God calls us to those things because life on this earth can be really, really hard. And it flies by sometimes. But life on earth is not all that there is. And we'll only find hope in such temporary relief if we truly believe that God will certainly deliver his people. That's something that kind of hit me today. Like, these temporary reliefs that we've been given in Christ, they're only hopeful if we believe that God will certainly deliver his people in the end. And for me, a good indication of where my hope is uh, is found when I... When I preach this message to my wife and my children, man, as a single guy, young guy, yeah, you can kill me, but that's it. Boom. Then I look at my kids, I'm like, you touch my kids, you die. Like it is this protective nature. And I think, okay, firm, strong faith in the Lord says, I have to tell them, don't fear the one who can hurt you, don't fear the one who can take your life, fear God. That's okay to be protective of your children. I'm not saying, you know, well, let the rains go. Let them do what they want. But I'm saying it, it, that's where I can see, am I really believing this message or not? If, if, I'm, if I'm not willing to preach it to my seven-year-old or my five-year-old or one of the two-year-olds, am I really, am I really do I believe it? Do, is it? do I view it as not, not that's too, too, too risky to tell them that. that. That's a good indicator of where I'm at. And we'll close with this. Christ is finally the deliverer of God's people. Christ is finally the deliverer of God's people. God will certainly deliver his people and he always does it through Christ. This is so cool. If we zoom out from the book of Esther and sort of take this bird's eye view, we see a really interesting development in our gospel story. Remember the death edict that went forth from Haman from, with the king's signet ring? That actually went forth. It was a death edict. Israel, you're going to die because everyone in each of the provinces is going to kill you. You, your wives, your children, your young, your old, and then we'll take all your belongings, wipe you from earth. Death eating. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. For the sinner, that's a death eating. It's certain. It's irreversible. The king can't take that back. The king can't say, I mean, Our hope in Esther, if you're reading through it in a narrative form, you say, okay, well, the king said that, but he didn't really know what Haman was doing, so he can just take it back, right? It's irreversible. The death edict when it went forth from the king is irreversible. When you look at it, you're thinking, oh, well, hopefully he'll take that back, but he couldn't because that wasn't the way things work. It is an absolutely irreversible, irrevocable move. So you could see God saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, and then you see a world full of sinners and say, oh, God, take it back. Please take it back. God, if you don't take it back, everyone's going to die. But if you can't take it back, the only possibility is that maybe something else comes from our king. So we see this picture here. It was from the king's hand. It was irrevocable. The, The reality was a certain death. It was irreversible and ever impending. And if that's all I have, all I can do is tremble and wait, just like the Jews would have had to do. For that date that would come in the following December, all the Jews could have done, if nothing else came from the king all they can do is tremble and wait. And if all we know is all of sin and the wages of sin is death, what do we have but trembling and waiting? Hopelessness. But Haman was the accuser of God's people saying that they should die. Satan is our accuser. He doesn't want us to find Jesus. Jesus. He doesn't want us to trust Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 says, the God of this world wants to blind the minds of unbelievers from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. He wants to put the smoke up and put the mirrors up and put the the barricade up to keep us from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He He wants to accuse us and he wants us to die an eternal death. Just like Haman looked at Mordecai and said, it's not enough for you to die. I want all of your people to die, the accuser. But in Esther and Mordecai, God raises up a mediator. One who can go before the king and seek the well-being of their people. Think about what relief there was for God's people with that mediator. Went before the king, made an appeal for the people. If you haven't gotten there already, (laughs) Jesus is our mediator. This is what Christ does for us. He's our mediator. He takes our sins upon himself Thereby taking God's wrath that was directed upon us, upon Himself. God can't just do a redo or an undo on wrath. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is towards unrighteousness, because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. You're a sinner, the wages of sin is death, because in your sin you suppress the truth about God. God can't look at you and say, Never mind, I take it back. If there's no mediation for you, you're going to hell. If there's no mediation for you, God punishes his enemies. But if there's mediation for you, there's a hope that comes along that exists in Christ. He is our mediator. He goes before the king. And our only hope is what he does on our behalf. There's, I can't do anything about my own sin. My hope is what he does. The people in Israel and in Proverbs in 123 over there couldn't do anything. The only way for something to happen was a mediator to go in for the king, before the king. So, Acts 17, 28 says, in him, in Christ, we live and we move and we have our being. His movement as a faithful servant of his father has freed us from impending death. It's in Christ that we can say God will certainly deliver his people. And it's only in Christ that we can keep an attitude that would say to our enemies, the worst you can do is kill me. And remember last week, this is the closing point. The change that we saw in Israel when the mediator went before the king. You remember the change we saw in Israel before the mediator went before the king? Upon hearing the death edict, there was weeping and mourning and sackcloth and ashes. There was gloom, there was despair, there was woe. And then in Esther eight sixteen, when a message comes from the king because of a mediator, it says, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Jesus tells us that he has come that we may have life to the full. In Christ, it says we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I don't even know what that means. I mean, I've studied it, but I don't even know what that means. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We're orphans who experience the joy of adoption. We're the guilty who experience the joy of forgiveness. We're the lost who experience the joy of being found. We're the Lazaruses or Lazari who are dead and decaying and stinking, who experience the joy of hearing our King's voice calls back to life. In closing, the lessons revealed to us by God and Esther should lead us. We should be comforted in our trials. We should be courageous in our obedience. And we should be confident with joyful hope as we wait for our king to return. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much gospel encouragement in Esther. I've genuinely been surprised as I've read through it. Just incredibly encouraged at your sovereignty, your providence, um, and your care for your, your children. Again and again, you give us in Christ that which we, it's so wonderful, we don't fully even comprehend it, but my prayer is that as we study the word, it will cause us to want to think on it more and to consider it more. Um, We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.